all God's people said? Amen. What a beautiful reminder that you can always come back to God no matter where you've gone because God is always waiting for you. If you have a Bible, take it and turn with me today to John chapter 17, and I want to speak about a godly father. Today is Father's Day, and while it's not particularly a discussion of fatherhood, it is a discussion of your father and uh, today I hope that you take the time to give your father a call if your father's with us. And uh, if he's not, then rejoice and thank God for those who have invested so mightily in your life. This Father Day uh, has taken on unique significance to me uh, when we were in Cuba. Um, everything was going wonderful. We got home on Monday. you hear a little bit more about that later. But um, Tuesday morning I found out that my father had fallen and had laid in a room for about 24 hours before he was found, and we had to put him in the hospital. And uh, because of his condition, he couldn't articulate what was going on, and he was struggling to find words. And to be frank about it, I have never seen my father in that condition, and so it was really disturbing to me. Um, he's 89 years old, and never once has there been the, uh, the notion that he was not going to be with us. We just figured he'd go on to 90 and then 95 and then 100, and he still looks good. We figured he's just going to keep driving and doing what he wanted to do. Uh, but we had a, just a, a stark reminder that our fathers are precious, and they may not be here forever. I remember walking out with my youngest brother, David, going to the elevator, and David said, you know, it's really hard to see Superman like that. Well, that was true to us. He's our hero, taught us how to throw a ball, shoot a gun, how to catch a fish, so many things that uh, are collective um, that we can't express them all except to say that we're grateful we have a father uh, that was a good dad. And that's a reminder that there's a heavenly father that's even better. If you don't have a good father, and it's possible today this is a hard day for you because yours was not a shining example then I want you to know you have, a, you have a heavenly Father that is everything that you could ever wish for and more. It brings us down to John 17. John 17 is sometimes called the Lord's Prayer because this is the actual Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer over in Matthew 6. Really, is not a prayer that Jesus would have prayed because it has a petition for forgiveness in it, and Jesus never needed to pray for forgiveness. That's the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. Um, some people say it's the high priestly prayer because he prayed it right after the Lord's Supper, the first one, or he prayed it on the way to Gethsemane. So either way, as you think about it, what we have is a conversation here between Jesus and his Father. Jesus and his Father. As such, this chapter stands out as one of the most beautiful one of the most tender passages in all the Bible. It is rich in sermonic material, meaning we could take sermons from this chapter for the rest of the year and not even begin to exhaust all that is in this chapter. It has enormous value and application. But the greatest dynamic of this chapter is it is a window. It's a window into the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. There's no other passage in all the Bible that helps us see how intimate the relationship was between those who are in the heavenlies in the Trinity. We have God the Father 
in God the Son. Now, as such, I think what we find here is not just a model father. We find something far better than that. We find the perfect father. My father, as good a man as he is, as much as I love him and respect him, my father's not perfect. And he would tell you that. I'm not perfect. My sons have an imperfect father. Your father, not perfect. Heavenly father, perfect. So I want to talk about being a godly father today with using God as, of course, the model for that. As I read in to the first five verses, I want you to just pay close attention to the expressions that Jesus uses regarding his relationship to his father. Verse 1, pick it up if you will. Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh so he may give eternal life to all you gave to him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Godly fathers. What is true of the father should be true of the mother, true of the children, true of all those who are God followers. Today, let me show you some things we can learn from God about how to be a better dad. If you're a dad, take it to heart. If you're a mom, it applies to you too. For all of us, we must walk the same path. What I see first here is that a godly father initiates and values meaningful relationships. I'm zooming in particularly on this word father for just a moment. It is not uh, the the Abba Father, this is Peter, it's a different word. It's not formal, but it's not that same one that would be like Daddy. This is one that's one of intimacy where there's a connectedness, and that's the point of this verse. It says that I'm connected directly to this person. One of the things I want you to notice is that while this passage is theological, it's also personal. It's personal. You could say that this passage reminds us of the inner workings of the Trinity, and that would be true, but it's more than that. It's personal. It's literally a son speaking to his father. And while God exists as a sovereign over the entire universe, you need to know that Jesus is bringing this home to say, God is not distant nor disinterested. That is that God is not like the agnostic says. He's not some force out in the universe that's just kind of floating around and he doesn't care about his creation. But on the contrary, God is close. God does care. God wants to initiate and he values the relationships that he has with you and he had with his son. In fact, if you read this chapter, this whole chapter is about relationships. There's at least seven different relationships referred to in this chapter. There's a relationship between God and the world. It says that God has saved some out of the world. So God relates to the world. There's a relationship between God the Father and the believer, that God has chosen you. 
Before time began, God made you his child. There's a relationship between Jesus and the world. It says the world has rejected Jesus, but Jesus is still going to die for the world. There's a relationship between Jesus and his followers, and that is that he has saved them, and they are literally his children. There's a relationship between the world and the believer. The world hates the believer, but the believer is not to hate the world. They've been left in the world that they might win the world. And then there's a relationship between the believer and the believer where he says later in the chapter that we are to be one as God is one in heaven. And finally, there's a relationship between Jesus and the Father. You say, why to go to the trouble to point all that out? Because I want you to see the point of the chapter is relationships, that God has been active initiating and valuing relationships. Let me say this to fathers that are busy. you got your job. You've got your hobbies. You have all those things that keep you busy. I want to tell you, at the end of your life, no one cares about your job or your hobby. Your children aren't going to raise up and say, my dad was a great man because he could build this or he could, he could do that or he had this skill. They don't care about that. At the end of our life, they want to know, did you maintain, did you value a relationship with your wife and with your children? Note this, everything that Jesus accomplished flowed out of his relationship to his father. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Father, the hour has come. In different words, the timetable of the life of Jesus was, was related to whatever the father had told him. He said, glorify your son <clears throat> so that your son might glorify you. Glorify your son meant that Jesus was sent to die on a cross. He meant simply this, that God knew that Jesus had a work to do, and the, the divine purpose was not even the cross. It was the glory of God. He said, let me suffer, be glorified through suffering, that I might bring glory to you. Notice it all. Flows out of the relationship that Jesus had with his Father. The Father initiates and he values relationships. Men, I just want to say to you again, we're notorious for not doing that. Our culture has emasculated men. And we have demeaned, to some degree, the role of men, not only in the culture, but also in the home. Watch commercials. Commercials have shifted now, and men now are just bad by nature because they're men. Now, I'm not going to argue that. Ladies, you might even get an amen on that, but I will say this, that from the very beginning, God intended for you as a man to be a good father and a, and a good husband. That's part of the role of God because that's what God does. If you look at the text, it's all about relationship. You have it all, you do it all, and you lose your family. Dear friend, you lost it all. This is the whole point of the text, that relationships matter. God's intention for men is to create and to value meaningful relationships. So pause right here, men. What's the most important thing in your life? What is the most important thing in your life? The next toy that you're going to buy so you can get some thrill doing this thing or that thing? Is it? 
Is it your job? Or can you say that somewhere in your life the most important thing, the thing you would die for, the reason you do work, the reason that all, all that exists in your world is happening is because of the relationships that you have with your children and your spouse. God is a relational God, and he's called you to relationships. He would say that he values them deeply. In fact, he valued them enough that he sent his son to a cross that he could initiate a relationship with you. That's the first thing I see in the text. The second thing I notice about a godly father is that he illustrates what he seeks to produce. He illustrates what he seeks to produce. In the second verse, he said that he may give, Jesus might give eternal life to all you have given him. Now, maybe you didn't catch it all, but notice the give and the give. Jesus gives what the Father gave. That is, that he is doing the same thing that the Father does. And I, when I think of the text, I think of he, how he resembles his Father. You know, when a newborn is, is in the nursery in the hospital, it's not unusual to watch family and friends go over to that glass and they act like idiots. I mean, they put their nose up on the glass and they're looking. Now, they're doing some things, right? They're counting fingers and toes and trying to make sure all the body parts are there. And that's all important, of course. But as soon as that verbal or that visual dissection is over, then they start to look at some new things, some valuable things like, does he have his father's chin? Or he's got his mother's eyes or she looks like her granny. When my granddaughter was born, um, everybody had an opinion about who she looked like. And, of course, they were all correct. I understand that. But my mother was actually the right person. My mother looked at her great-granddaughter, and she, uh, she pulled me aside. She said, I'm not going to say this in front of anybody else, but she looks like you. Well, of course she was right. That's how we are. We, we are looking for resemblance, family resemblance. It's possible that a child could grow up and look just like you, but not be like you. In this text, what we see is that Jesus doesn't particularly look like the Father and that he's got a human form, but he is exactly like the Father. The Father had glory. Jesus has glory. The Father gives. Jesus gives. The whole point is this idea that we have someone to look at that looks like the Father. Jesus loved like the Father loved. Jesus acted like the Father acted. Jesus taught what the Father taught. Jesus was, in fact, the full expression of God. If you see Jesus, you see God. And what's the point of that? That, dear friends, on a human level, if you don't illustrate what you're seeking to produce, you're definitely not going to produce it. If your children don't see in you what needs to be in them, you don't give to them that thing that they need, then they probably will not have it. I'm going to correct some of that error in just a moment that I just said. I'll come back to that, but I do want you to understand that if you don't model a life that's godly, then they're not likely to catch it either. I have an, an aunt and uncle that live in Bonham, Texas, and one summer I went down to work there with them. Bonham, Texas. Bonham was named after a guy by the name of James Bonham. James Bonham fought at the Alamo. He was one of those uh, brave souls that gave his life defending the Alamo. 
Um, if you go to the Alamo today, you can go inside and you will find a picture that says James Bonham on the side wall. The problem is there are no existing pictures of James Bonham. None. They don't exist. The picture that you do see is the nephew of James Bonham. And his family all said that he was a splitting image, splitting image of his uncle. And so when they were trying to find a resemblance, they found that, put that in the Alamo, and that's who you're really looking at. Now, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said in John 14, 9, The one who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. We have caricatures of God that paint him as some angry being that's up in the heavens waiting to destroy people. We read the Old Testament, some of the things that are hard there, and we say, well, I don't understand how God could do that or how God judged this. The fact of, those, of, of that, that is all that those are caricatures. Those aren't renderings of who Jesus really is or God really is. You want to know what God really is? God is like Jesus. Now, my point is simply this, that everything about Jesus you could find in the Father. And I simply ask this, how many of you fathers want your children to turn out like yourself? Are you living such a way that your life illustrates what you hope to produce. Several years ago, when Daniel was just a baby sitting in the back seat, we drove up to Wendy's to pick up some food, and I handed the money off to the person inside the window, and I said, thank you. Thank you for taking my money. That's essentially what I was saying. So I said, thank you, and in the back seat, I heard little Daniel, thank you. Morality is more caught than taught. They don't see in me, my boys don't see in me something that's godly, it's probably not going to be caught. The whole idea is that I need to illustrate for my family what I want them to look like in the end. Jesus was the complete product of what the Father is. Now, I don't want to send the wrong message. I don't want you to think that Jesus is a created being. He's not. He's one with the Father, eternal forever. But I just want you to see that what you see in God the Father is true of God the Son. He illustrates that which he seeks to produce. Let me give you a third thing I see here. The godly Father instills the virtues needed to influence the world. Not only does he illustrate it personally, but he tries to instill in his children the virtues, the virtues that can influence the world. There's a, there's a great myth that's out there about parenting. The myth goes something like this. <clears throat> good parents produce good children. Bad parents produce bad children. Now, there's a degree to which we can validate that, is there not? Just look at children, look at parents, and see if you can't put those things together. But that's a myth. You say, well, Brother Jerry, I think that's right. Well, I'm telling you it's wrong, and I can prove it. If you go back to the Old Testament, you have a king by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh is an evil man, a wicked king. He did, the Bible says, and I quote, evil in the sight of the Lord and much evil, and he made children pass through the fire. What that means is he believed in child sacrifice, and he killed more than one baby along the way. He was an evil king. He had a son named Amnon. Amnon followed in his father's footsteps, and he too was an evil man, continuing the policies of his father so egregious that the people rose up 
and kicked him off the throne. They put an eight-year-old on the throne in his place. An eight-year-old. His name was Josiah. The Bible says this at eight years old, that Josiah did that which was good in the sight of the Lord. Hold on, I don't know how that even got in the Bible. What do you mean? He had an evil father and an evil grandfather, but an eight-year-old boy broke the mold and he lived one of the godliest lives you can find of anybody. Well, how did that happen? If bad parents always produce bad children, then how did a good child come out of the loins of Manasseh? Oh, by the way, it doesn't stop there. Because he had a child. He was one of the most godly kings that ever lived. He had a child, and his child turned bad. Here's a good king, has a bad son. A bad king has a good son. The bottom line is, you need to understand that even human beings in general have a tendency to make bad choices. God was a perfect father. He had two children. He put them in a perfect environment, and he gave them one rule, only one rule, and they broke it. They broke it. So having clarified the myth, let me add one caveat to that. The myth does not always hold because you're... You, you're not factoring God into the equation. That's it. But I will tell you this. There is some truth to predisposition or predisposal. In the, in the, tw- in the uh, 20th chapter of Exodus, we have the Ten Commandments. You know those. It's speaking about idols. Idols. Don't make any idols. In the next part of that, it says, if you do, that God's going to visit you to the third and fourth generation. But if you do what's right, God will bless you to the third and fourth generation. Some people have taken that to mean that if you sin, if you sin, your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids are going to bear the brunt of your sin. That is, they get punished for your mistakes. Well, that's not biblical. That's not what that means. What it does mean is this. That my behavior, for good or bad, predisposes my children to good or bad. That is, if I take drugs in my home, I predispose my kids to drugs. If I drink in my home, I predispose them to drink. If I do this thing or that thing. But if I read my Bible, I pray, I witness, I try to live a godly life, I predispose them to certain things. And the generations tend to follow that to which they have been exposed. I hope you're catching the whole breadth of this for just a second. On the one hand, on the one hand, it is a myth to say that kids always turn out like their parents. On the other hand, it is true that the influence of a godly parent can have enormous, enormous effect upon the children. I know some who were the children of pastors that turned out pretty good. Jenna's one, pretty good. Pretty good. I know some children of pastors who turned out pretty awful. The fact of the matter is, that influence is not a guarantee. You are a free moral being. You get to make your decisions, your choices for good or bad. All I am really saying is when I look at this text, I see that God instilled in Jesus what was necessary to change the world. Now, I don't understand how that all works in the eternity past, and I'm not suggesting anything other than that. What I am saying is this, that a godly father instills virtues needed to influence the world. Ultimately, your children will make their decisions. They will have to decide to follow Jesus. But I will say this, they're more likely to catch what you've got.
So give them something to catch. God gives, Jesus gives. That's what we're saying. Let me give you a final thing here. Zooming in on this word glory for just a second. A godly father inspires a lifetime of purpose. Jesus said, glorify me that I might glorify you. Glorify me that I might glorify you. One of the things we know for sure about Jesus, and there are many that we know for sure, is that he knew his mission and purpose. He knew his mission and purpose. He knew that the cross was before him. He was going to die for the sins of all humanity. That was not his purpose. That was his mission. He came to die for the sins of the world. His purpose to bring glory to God by obedience to all that God had assigned to him. That's it. His purpose, bring glory to the Father. Even the request for his own glorification where he says, Father, glorify me, is rooted in his desire so that he might be able to glorify the Father back again. It was all for the extended purpose of bringing glory to the name of God. So as I apply that to us, I'd simply say that God's inspired a lifetime of purpose for you. God has a purpose for your life. And to be frankly honest, it's a lot like what Jesus' purpose was, that you might bring glory to your heavenly Father. Do you instill in your children some direction, some guidance? You know, children can waste their lives on a lot of things. It's become more evident in our technological society today than ever before. They can waste hours sitting in front of a screen that brings no value to them at all. You saying, Brother Jerry, you saying it's wrong to play video games. No, that's not what I'm saying. I played some with my boys. What I am saying is that you can waste your life on things that have absolutely no meaning and bring no glory to God, or you can give your life to the things that bring glory to God. That's what I'm saying. Fathers, you have a responsibility to make sure that your children are doing some things. They're guided. They have direction. They have purpose. You're helping to instill in them some values that help them go in the right direction. They might bring glory to God. Many of you have been to Washington, D.C., and if you go to Washington, you might see the Sam Rayburn Building. You might remember that name. It's the biggest office building for congressmen. Um, Democrats and Republicans alike share this building. It's named after, of course, Sam Rayburn. Sam Rayburn was a congressman from Texas. He served 50 years in the House of Representatives. 20 of those years, he was the Speaker of the House. When his father died, a colleague came to him and said, it's a shame that your father didn't have more wealth to pass on to you. And Rayburn responded by simply saying, my father gave me the greatest treasure. He gave me a good name and a reason to live. I just want to tell you, dear friends, God, your father, has given you the greatest treasure of all. If you're his follower, you have his name. And you have his mission. You are part of his family. And God intends for you to use that to bring glory back to him. Meantime, while you're doing that, men, you need to be a godly father. A godly father. 
one of those that is inspiring your children, one of those who's illustrating a life of integrity, one of those who instills values, one of those who's constantly initiating and reinitiating a relationship that is meaningful. And that can only happen if one other thing is true, if Christ is meaningful to you. The real question is, are you a godly father because you're a God follower? That's where it starts. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I know we've been speaking to men just a little bit today, but to all of us in the room, we simply ask a question today. Is my life a godly life? That is, am I relating to others the way that I should, to my family, to my children, to my spouse? to my co-workers? Am I illustrating the life that has been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I instilling in those that I can influence godly values? Am I living on purpose? Christ illustrates all of that for us. I just want to tell you, you can waste your life. You can waste your life by doing a thousand good things that have no meaning. Or you can invest your life by doing things that have an eternal impact. So today for you, the decision is this. One, will I follow Jesus? That is, will you trust him as your Lord and Savior? you believe in the work that he did on the cross? Will you believe in the empty tomb? Will you trust him as Lord and Savior, find the forgiveness of sin and eternal life or not? Secondly, if you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, will you live a godly life? A life that your children and your spouse and your friends can look to and say, you know what? They look like God. I want to be like that. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know, I've already messed up, Brother Jerry. I just say, welcome to the club. God is constantly waiting, constantly seeking to renew. He wants to revive his relationship with you. So today, in just a moment, we're going to have the invitation. Brother Barry will be here at the front. I'll be standing up here. And if God has spoken to your heart about just renewing your faith, maybe it's time. Let's just take that step and say, to my whole family, to my church, I want to be godly. And then let God take care of the rest. Just come and take Brother Barry, Barry's hand. He'll pray with you. If you're lost, come and let us speak to you about coming to Christ. And all this, may God be glorified. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. And I, I simply ask God that you'll take it and help it to be clear today. I pray that those who are already your people, that God... They'll be serious about walking with you. And may those who don't know you yet, may they realize that not only does their eternity hinge on their faith in Jesus, but their life right now can be so much more meaningful. God, give them the grace to step out and to be saved. And for all that you have done, and God, all you're about to do, we praise you if we ask it. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.